Hey friends, welcome to Worry Less, Wag More. This is the Behavior Vets Podcast. I'm your host, Ferdy Yao. Join me to dive into the thrills and challenges of treating pet behavior issues. I'll shine a light on science-based training that's effective and brings us closer to understanding the animals we share our lives with. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our very first Worry Less, Wag More, The Behavior Vets podcast. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Elise Christensen. She is the chief medical officer and founder of Behavior Vets. We all affectionately know her as Dr. C., And Dr. C is a board-certified veterinary behaviorist and an international lecturer and author. Dr. C received her Doctor of Veterinary Medicine from Iowa State University in 2002. She first became interested in veterinary behavior as a high school student when she worked at a veterinary practice and began training animals for pet therapy at a local substance abuse facility. Wow, very interesting. While in veterinary school, she researched separation anxiety in shelter dogs, was an assistant trainer at an animal shelter, and studied with numerous board-certified veterinary behaviorists. So Dr. C enjoys lecturing nationally and internationally on an array of behavior topics, including, but not limited to, small animal behavior, public health, and animal sheltering topics. Now, Dr. C is always working on new ideas to support animals, families, trainers, and veterinary colleagues as they learn more about behavior and managing animals with behavioral disorders. She is really an inspiration to all of us here at Behavior Vets. Our entire team really, really looks up to her and follows her lead. So Dr. C, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for being my very first guest. So I'd like to jump right into it. Uh, So let's talk about animals who are experiencing anxiety and fear. This is These are cases that you are quite familiar with, and I know people come to you with very, very tough cases. What are your initial thoughts when someone comes to you with a very challenging and emotional dog behavior case, and they ask you, can you help us? We are at a loss about what to do here. You know, it's actually that's every case I see. Every case that I see these days um, as a veterinary behaviorist and probably for the last gosh over 15 years has been a difficult and emotionally challenging case or it wouldn't end up in my lap so but the good news is that's the kind of case i really love i'm drawn to uh families in crisis i i want to be able to help and i love being able to say you know you've come to the right place we can we can help we might not be able to get a dog who's had a lot of aggressive behavior at the dog park to suddenly be able to be safe at the dog park, but we can help you find new ways to work with your animal so that you can meet the animal's needs and still help provide the public safety and safety for the animal that you love and for your family and help them feel better and blossom in whatever environment they're in. 
we have a good chance of being able to do that, even with pretty severe cases, if the families are interested in doing that work. That's why we're here. So it's such an honor when people come in because when they come in, they, you know, it's pretty typical for the behavior vets to hear, you know, you're my last stop. And um, that's very sad. And on the other hand, it's a huge honor to have somebody who is coming to you as their last resort to choose you as their last resort. It's a huge amount of trust. So um, I'm usually really excited to see them so I can see what we can do to help. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's talk about some of these, uh, some of these, some of the patients that you see, you know, let's, let's take, for example, a dog where you, you take them outside and they just pancake down on the ground and refuse move. Uh, they may even have trouble, you know, the owners may even have trouble getting them out of that home. Um, so what's going on inside that animal then? Uh, why are they behaving like that when there's no real danger to them, but to the animal, they are just pancaking and they aren't, aren't moving at all. Right. The trick is, is knowing that what we may perceive as real danger and what the animals perceive as real danger can be very different. And this can be different from person to person too. Some people are phobic getting on elevators. Some people think that's crazy, right? Are you likely to be injured on an elevator? No, but that doesn't mean your feelings about being scared or being unable to get on one because of fears of what might happen are less real. They're still very real and very important to each individual. In the case of dogs in, in generally in intense urban environments, like our New York City practice, for instance, a common place where we'd see this, where oh, yeah. these pups, especially if they haven't been socialized in the city, right? We, in New York City, we get a lot of patients that have um, come to our families from different types of rescue organizations um, and also socialization histories where maybe they've never left the house. And Imagine if you, you know, if you'd been kept in a closet until you were seven or eight years old and somebody just put you on a street in New York City, it would be very scary. The noises, the people, the other animals, the vehicles, the trash cans, stuff blowing around. It doesn't surprise me when dogs are petrified in intense urban environments, especially if they haven't had a lot of exposure when they were young or a reasonable, healthy amount of exposure, I should say. They've had a lot of exposure. They could be really scared, too. Um, but it doesn't surprise me when they are. It surprises me more that many aren't, that they are willing to go out into this completely bananas world and give it a shot. Yeah, you know, you, it's, uh, you mentioned that, like, uh, maybe you have a puppy that is uh, showing signs of fear and anxiety. Um, and, you know, I think it's very, very common for uh, a lot of uh, dog owners to just think, oh, you know, this is a phase, they'll just grow out of it. Um, is there a danger in that type of approach? Or will they grow out of it? Great question. Sometimes they do, especially if they have help from a family who is being taught what they need to look for as far as whether the pup is too anxious and what we're really looking for tons of different things but one of the most important things is recovery right so okay maybe you get a little fearful something new in the environment it's not surprising that an individual animal might get startled or uncomfortable or fearful but what we'd love to see is a puppy who's able to recover quickly to have that resilience and if we're not seeing a lot of resilience or it's not happening well for that pup then that's a sign that we're in a little bit more serious territory and we need maybe some more coaching or even more proactive intervention okay so you know i've often heard i've heard this term before uh that there's normal fear and then there's um abnormal fear okay 
um, or there's adaptive fear and maladaptive fear. What's the difference there? Well, adaptive fear would be something that helps you escape something that's actually dangerous to you, right? So if you um, saw a snake, for instance, now in granted, many snakes aren't going to do any harm to you, but it's probably a relatively elemental fear for many creatures and many humans to be afraid of, of snakes and um, spiders, for instance. Uh, the reality of it is it probably isn't going to do you any harm, but it still may be adaptive to move away right? Because you don't know what is the snake or the spider going to do. Maybe they're venomous, maybe not. Better just to move away or run away if you're feeling really scared. That would be an adaptive fear. Moving away from something is actually threatening um, is an important skill set. And your brain is wired to do that. Some brains are more wired to do that. And that actually is where we can run into troubles with maladaptive fear is brains that may be wired to be very sensitive to the environment so that things like, say, a Kleenex, right? Normally, we wouldn't think of a Kleenex as scary. It doesn't really do anything. It's soft. It doesn't make any noise. It's not venomous, but it is new for some creatures. So if we see that and we're running away, that would in, often be considered um, a concern for a maladaptive fear because it's not an item that's actually going to do any harm. Mm. And then let's take this example. Like, uh, so there was a tissue that was lying on the ground. The, the puppy was afraid of it. And then the next day, there's no tissue there anymore, but the puppy is afraid of going into that room again. Um, so what, what's going on there? Why would a puppy, even, you know, the, the scary tissue is gone now. Why would a puppy be afraid of going into that room? And, you know, I'm just saying tissue because he used that example, but yeah. this could be anything. It could be a garbage can, <laughs> you yeah, know, it could yeah, be yeah. A, a garbage truck. I mean, this is the cool thing about neuroscience, right? Is we actually know what's happening is the, the puppy's brain is remembering in that area, something scary happened that puppy may even have a very clear picture of what that scary thing was. And therefore they're avoiding, avoiding the location. So I would be concerned as a clinician if I saw a puppy do that, because in general, um, we think of behaviorally healthy puppies as pretty resilient and eager to explore the environment, very involved in seeking throughout the environment, investigative behaviors, pretty normal. I mean, of course, it's somewhat age dependent, but you know, if you're thinking of a puppy at the usual age when you would take them home, they they sleep like rocks, right? But when they're up, they can be relatively busy. They're sniffing things, they're chewing on things, they're looking at things, they're they're seeing the environment for the first time, right? And many of them are seeing the environment and all these new things for the first time and appear from the outside to be doing it with maybe a little bit of caution, but actually many of them relatively boldly. And if they do get a little startled, many of them go right back to whatever they were up to, which is great. That would mm -hmm. be a sign that, hey, this pup, is doing pretty well behaviorally, maybe gets a little uncomfortable, but able to bounce back quickly. Pups that aren't able to bounce back quickly make me a lot more concerned about needing additional help because we want to help those families recognize the signs that their pup's uncomfortable so that we can build coping strategies for that puppy so that over time, hopefully we can build that resiliency and help their brain move from automatically going into a fear state or very quickly going into a fear or avoidance state to having the opportunity to go into a different type of exploratory behavior, for instance, or a more optimistic frame of mind. Okay. So what, what signs should families be looking for uh, to, to think, 
you know, that, hey, this isn't just normal fear. This isn't just adaptive fear. This is something that is a little uh, more intense than that. What kind of signs should be, they be looking for? Well, that example of puppies afraid of a room where something that we wouldn't think of normally as very scary happened, um, that would be a sign that I would be concerned about. That's a puppy whose whose brain is very good at grabbing a fear memory, holding on to a fear memory, and then utilizing it in the future, pulling it up and having it affect its behavior the next day. And we have patients like that at Behavior Vets all the time. I just had one yesterday where the owners reported, you know, if he hears a beep, you know, for the next month, whatever that place was where he heard that beep, he won't go back there on a walk, right? And that's common in my patient load, but it's not common in regular pups. So um, or animals that are more easily adaptable to environmental change. So holding on to a fear memory that tightly and, and, and acting on it over time would be something that I'd be thinking about. We need to provide some extra support for this family and this pup. Uh, any growling, snarling, snapping, or biting that is not in play in a puppy, I would definitely want families to be getting help for early because we can, that can be a bad sign. And at the same time, sometimes we can help those puppies get on the right track so that we can diffuse that situation and help them learn new ways to respond. But if people are managing those puppies on their own, they often take a lot of wrong turns and accidentally make the problem worse. So those puppies, I think, really do need professional help. Really, it's better to do it earlier. Like It, it would be nice if instead of being a last resort, you know, a, a veterinary behaviorist or a very skilled behavior trainer was a first resort. But of course, generally first resort is talking to neighbors, talking to friends, re relying on your received wisdom, how you were taught to parent puppies, for instance. And unfortunately, received wisdom isn't that great at helping with these specific situations where there is a high risk that we could end up with a pup who has some issues in the future that may, might even be safety issues for the animal and for the family. Mm hmm. Um, so we, you mentioned growling, snapping, biting. Um, are there other signs uh, that we should look for other than those? Because, you know, I think people are very um, they recognize that very clearly. You know, when, yeah. when you got all that teeth going at you, uh, people recognize that very clearly. Are there other signs that are maybe more subtle that uh, families should be looking for? Yeah, to your point, they do recognize those signs, but the problem is, is that they don't always notice the difference between a playful behavior or intention seeking mouthing behavior and a more serious potential underlying motivation that could be a problem for the future. So um, a lot of times families will see growling or mouthing or biting in a puppy and they'll blow it off as normal puppy behavior. And sometimes it is, especially if it's in play, but sometimes it's not. And my experience is that a lot of people cannot tell the difference between those two things. But um, you're right. There are a lot of subtle signals that many families also miss because frankly, we just don't teach each other these subtle signals of animal body language. And it's, it's not a skill that you can just learn by doing necessarily. There's a, a lot of research and science about you know the different domesticated species and what their behaviors indicate based on what happens in the rest of their environment and what behaviors they continue to do so it's it's not mystical or magic you don't have to have some sort of weird zen connection with dogs or cats or horses to understand their behavior better 
you just need to understand what's out there in the literature and in the science and and regular people may not have ever had exposure to that many people don't know that a dog who's leaning away from them when they're touching them probably doesn't want to be touched many people don't know that seeing the whites of a dog's eyes or seeing them yawn or seeing facial muscle tension or seeing the ears go back or seeing body muscle tension are signs that that dog may not be comfortable and since they don't know those things they may continue to put the puppy in the situation that's problematic for that individual and accidentally increase the risk that that pup's going to have those symptoms over the longer term so mm. hiding in a puppy you know sleeping normal hiding mm, i'd be concerned right if, if we're hiding we're not able to come out and enjoy life we're not seeking we're not looking at the environment we're not exploratory if a puppy is meeting another dog and the first instinct of that pup is to growl, for instance, or first response of the dog is to growl, um, not in play, then I would be thinking, oh, these are these are situations that we need to to really think about. That would be like if a kindergartner first met a fourth grader and the way they greeted them was by spacking them across the face, right? <laughs> it's not a, it's not a normal social behavior and it could really increase the risk of abnormal social behaviors in the future. Yeah, those dogs that hide and just seem to want to crawl in the corner yeah. even when there's nothing going on. I mean, that's a thing that really I think um, you know breaks my heart, and I'm sure it's for a lot of other people as well. Um, you know, I have a friend. Uh, we we go hiking every Sunday, um, and this is um, this is a, a friend who is also a patient at Behavior Vets. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> a ninety pound. Uh, like bully dog mix um his name is baxter Cute. and um they live in manhattan um and uh he has a lot of trouble with just the the noise like mm -hmm. traffic uh just the urban environment um for a while they had a lot of construction going on around their home so yeah. he had a lot of trouble just going out for a walk uh so one of the things that we would do is every sunday uh we would go up to uh just this beautiful, um, just natural like area woods up in uh, Westchester County, uh, just outside New York City. Uh, we would meet them. We'd go for a hike there uh, every Sunday, um, and he would do really well there because it was nice and quiet. But every single year, right around this time, okay, um, this is when uh, it's springtime now in New York, and by mm -hmm. the time we hear this podcast, it may not be springtime, uh, but. Around springtime in New York here, we have a lot of migrating birds coming back north. Uh, and one of the birds that we hear here around the springtime are woodpeckers. Mm -hmm. So poor Baxter, you know, he really enjoys these walks in the woods. Like he, you see him just rolling around on the ground, running around and exploring, just like what you were talking about. A lot of exploratory behavior. But when he hears those woodpeckers, he completely starts, he stops in his tracks. Mm. He doesn't want to walk anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and we, he only wants to go back to the car. And this is something we, we have experienced every year for like the past um, about four years. And what they actually have to do is they, you know, in the past, um, my friends have had to basically take about four to six week six weeks off from going on a hike because of the woodpeckers are frightening the dog like yeah. we'll try to go out there and we'll walk a few steps and then all of a sudden he he you know he might even hear a bird singing mm -hmm. and then he freezes right um, but if he hears his woodpeckers he definitely freezes um 
So what kind of coping mechanisms can we can we use now to help him with in this situation? There's so many options for dogs that have fears like that. And there are a variety of different types of options, right? There's avoidance, right? We just don't go. Uh, a very rational option. This is sort of an elective thing. On the other hand, I could see how it would be really sad for the family because this is something that Baxter really enjoys, except for the woodpeckers, which for him are terrifying. Woodpeckers yes. are terrifying. So it's sort of like, you know, one of, I mean, not that I get to do this right now, but one of my favorite things to do would be like to go out um, to a restaurant and get to experience some um, group's creative, you know, culinary attempts, right? I love to see what people are up to. Like that's my version of an adventure, right? Um, but one of the things that scares me is spiders. So if every time I went to go do that, there was a risk that a spider was going to show up, I, I probably would stop going and or need a lot of therapy to figure out how I was going to work with it. And, you know, the, the good news is in humans, we have talk therapy and exposure therapy and all these coping strategies that we can say to one another and how we can support each other through these situations. And unfortunately, because we aren't able to have that sort of um, ongoing verbal dialogue with uh, animals like dogs, it can be hard for families to figure out, well, how can I help them through this? Because I can't just say, I mean, you could say it's going to be okay, but it's meaningless for a dog who is panicking, just like it's often meaningless for for people who are panicking. Like you can tell them it's going to be okay all you want, but they're having a panic attack um, and they may not be able to hold on to that at all. So what we would do, depending on the patient, is we'd take a look at what the trigger situation is. We'd in veterinary medicine and, and in animal behavior, we might try, unlike in humans, it seems like where they might do more exposure stuff, we might try to avoid that trigger while we're working to teach the dog new coping strategies. So we might work on things like what I think of as sort of the doggy version of mindfulness, but really important stuff like teaching the dog to relax or doing some biofeedback, teaching the dog to take deep breaths on cue, those kinds of things. So we can help move the body into a more relaxed state on cue. Those are foundational things that we can do with pups that have symptoms like this. They don't solve the problem in the moment. They're things you work on when woodpeckers are not present, when the chance of success is high. And we repetitively work on it so that it's easier and easier for the dog to move into that relaxed state. We can build on that by helping the dog learn about noises. And in some ways we can help dogs teach themselves about noises. For instance, we can make games where we practice with noises that are completely different from woodpecker sounds, but we could gradually work up to games where the dog is making sounds that sound pretty similar or even exactly the same. We could even do button pushing games where they push the button for the woodpecker sound to come on. For instance, we could build that into a game so that we are helping to change the emotional reaction to the sound of the woodpeckers. And if we needed to in the short term or the long term, because many dogs like Baxter have other triggers as well, at least the ones that we see, right? I, I don't see very many patients who have like one problem noise. Most of mm -hmm. my patients that see me have noise phobias, right? It's woodpeckers, it's the fire alarm, it's the sound of trucks backfiring, it's the sound of the Amazon truck seatbelt beep, it's the fresh direct trucks, right? Like they have um, a lot of noise phobias, fireworks and thunderstorms being some of the most classic. And so we might also in those patients work on teaching them different ways to respond to a variety of different triggers, working on their relaxation cues. And then also, if it seems like a case where it would be helpful, we might use a medication to help the patient feel less stressed, especially 
if the trigger is unavoidable or if there's multiple triggers in the environment that we can't avoid. It's very hard to learn to not be afraid of something if you're constantly exposed to that trigger at a level that causes your brain to be fearful. Some animals may habituate, they might quote unquote, get used to it. Uh, but those are not our patients. If our patients were going to get used to these things, that ship would have sailed before they came to see me. They would have Yeah, heard, they don't need us. <laughs> yeah, they would have heard work woodpeckers. And by the 50th time, they would have figured out, oh, nothing bad is happening. I'll move on with my life, right? Like, but um, our patients' brains are exceptionally good at um, identifying things that might be a threat, even if they're things that are not actually a threat. The, this brain is very good at identifying possible threats collecting possible threats that are related to each other and sort of generalizing them, um, which is why so many of our noise phobia patients have multiple noise phobias versus just one. They might start out with one, but they start to get more and more if they're untreated. So we want to, in that case, where we're having this generalization of things, we we'll circle back and say like, okay, well, what can we do to help this pet's physiology and help this pet's brain so that this the physical feeling of panic and fear isn't as intense so they have a better chance of learning the new things that we want them to learn. How can we help their brain have the right toolbox so that we're able to help them shift more quickly and more robustly to learning something new? Because the brain doesn't want to learn new things, really, unless it, and these brains want to learn new things about fearful things, like things that are scary, they will learn really fast. Things that are not scary, they don't learn very fast. That's not what that brain is really good at. So we're mm -hmm. trying to shift that brain sort of natural talents over to something different that takes time. And sometimes medication can help that. Yes, yeah, I know, um, you know, people are often at a loss when you, just like what you're talking about noise phobias, it seems like the dog is afraid of everything. Mm -hmm. um, and then people themselves, like the owners themselves, they're, they're paralyzed, they're, they, they don't, they don't even know where to start. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so you're saying that helping the dogs, you know, first learn how to relax, some biofeedback uh, mechanisms, um, learning how to take a deep breath, um, is helpful for them to start with. Uh, so, you know, there's another thing you mentioned there that's really interesting. You were talking about maybe teaching a dog to push a button that makes a noise. Okay. Yeah. So that. How is that helpful for a dog that's afraid of noises? Well, I wouldn't do it right out of the gate, right? That would be mm -hmm. that would be potentially a longer term part of a game. But the for many fearful creatures, if they have the ability to explore a trigger that but in a way that they can feel as comfortable as possible. So I would say within their success zone, that's sort of what the what's in my head. I want them to be feeling um, for lack of a better word, joyful or happy. I know mm -hmm. that's not scientific, but that's what I want. I want that brain in a positive emotional or a positive affective state, right? That's what I'm looking for. And so whatever game we might develop, the goal is to get them into that state, keep them in that state. And then because fearful creatures often do best when they feel like they can control things, if we can help this animal feel like they can control the trigger, we may find that they are able to develop a lot more bandwidth for triggers, especially ones that are related, that are not controllable. So if we work first to teach like, okay, you know, like let's play a little game where you make a completely unrelated noise and it's fun for you, right? Knock over a block, a little treat happens, good times. Or let's say it's a dog who does not really food motivated, but loves fetch, right? We might teach the pup to um, move something so that makes a little bit of a noise, then we toss the ball. Right. We just practice that over and over again so that he can see, oh, I move this item. Something really fun happens where we get to toss the ball. 
right? Then gradually we can change the noise up. We get him comfortable with a variety of different noises. And then we might get, um, as we sprinkle, you know, this game with different noises that the dog is controlling, we might actually start to add in noises that are more similar to the problem noises, like the woodpecker sound. That's yeah, that's really interesting. It's uh, it's um, one of these uh, concepts right now that is becoming a lot more popular among trainers. It's about increasing that choice and control for their for their learners. Uh, so why is that important? If you have a dog who is experiencing anxiety, uh, why is that important to give them more choice and control? Um, and how do we safely do that? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you have a dog that you know, could potentially just want to bolt and get out of there. Right. Right. I, that's a great question because I think that it's, it's not as, at least from my perspective, almost nothing is black and white from my perspective. That's probably why I love behavior because most veterinarians don't like living in the gray areas of life, but I'm, I'm comfortable there in behavior. I feel like we don't know all the answers to all these questions. And sometimes you, you need to provide containment, right? We can't eat the dog. The dog's brain wants him to escape the situation. And in New York City, in you know, and anywhere, you know, fireworks season, for instance, is a common time we have pups that end up bolting off leash, get hit by cars, they get lost, they end up at the shelters. So the not providing any containment is not a safe option for many of these animals. But we can when it's available based on the environment or we can make it available based on the environment, provide dogs some control of their environment where they can. I mean, think about being a dog, you're basically in control of almost nothing. I know families who have dogs would say my dog completely controls my life, but, but they may or may not feel that way, right? Because many of many families I meet, for instance, are frequently petting their dogs when their dogs don't want to be touched. So can you imagine if, I mean, many of us can unfortunately imagine what that's like to be in an environment where we're constantly being touched when we don't feel comfortable with it or it's not the right time. That's a very stressful way to live. But uh, I would bet if I went to um, my next door neighbors that have dogs, um, all of them are doing that. Right. So there's so many things that our animals cannot control in their environment that if we can provide them a few things that we like. Right. For instance, we might teach our dog to tell us in a way that we like that he wants to be petted. Then then we know you want to be touched. I want to touch you. This is a situation that we both agree to do, right? And um, then we're both having a positive experience. We can do that kind of thing with these other triggers and provide some, I guess, locus of control, some feeling that they control some of these things. Because if you, if you think about it, if you're in an environment, and many of us are experiencing this, um, some up to a lesser degree than others, but many people, especially with the pandemic, are experiencing what it's like to be out of control of so many things in our lives. It's very stressful. And so what's happening is people are controlling what they can there they're, um, in order to help themselves feel a little bit better and a little bit safer. So we want to provide those opportunities for our patients where we can, where it's safe for them. Yeah, that's a, actually a great example. Just talking about our <laughs> our pandemic life right now, um, how we ha have all lost a lot of our choice and control over what's happening. Um, and yeah, it is. It's like uh, now that uh, you know you get your vaccine and you feel like, yes, I have some control over a little bit more of my environment. I'm able to do a little bit more, visit more of my loved ones. Um, so yeah, I guess that's um, I guess that's a great example of uh, you know maybe helping 
dogs, um, giving them um, more choice and control. Over right. I mean, they don't con- they don't control when they eat, when they go to the bathroom. They a lot of mm-hmm. them don't control when they sleep because mm-hmm. people will try to get them to sleep at odd times or keep them awake or want them to wake up at odd times. Or when the dog wakes up at 5 a.m., the people are upset because that's not their normal schedule. We control um, when they have social access to other animals, when they have social access to us. We think about it, um, really, it's surprising that more dogs don't have troubles than do. And I think it's just a testament to the strength of domestication and genetics is that they put up with all of this for the most part. Of course, our patients don't put up with this well. Um, But we really ask our, especially our in-home domesticated creatures, but all really, we ask a lot of all the animals in the world as humans. And um, I think we should give them a little bit of credit for putting up with us, honestly, because we're not the easiest species to deal with. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, that's a great, um, I want to shift gears a little bit and actually talk about that human side of it. Uh, And I know when I'm working with some of my clients who have um, dogs that are experiencing a lot uh, pretty severe anxiety, uh, one of the things I tell them right from the start, just so I'm giving them clear expectations that it's very likely this is going to be a uh, lifetime of management. You know, these are the type of dogs where they are pancaking when you go outside or that you can't even get them outside. Um, they the noise phobias that you were talking about. Um, but yet I am amazed at how the families, you know, despite <laughs> understanding that this is going to be uh, a, a big effort, a big project, um, and they're, they're going to be dealing with this for a lifetime, they still put in the time and the effort to that. Um, so w- what, you know, you know, obviously I know a lot of people just need a lot, need support from us, but um, where are they getting out of it? Where are humans getting out of it from putting you know, so much, like they almost, they almost change their lives just for the dogs. You know, why are they investing so much into this? You know, what, what do they get out of this relationship? Uh, that's a great question. And I am uh, able to treat every species as an animal psychiatrist, except humans. So it's, it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but from the outside, it looks like there's a lot of different reasons why people may do this. Some of them feel like they have no other option, right? Like they, they would judge themselves so harshly if they didn't keep the animal in their life. Um, that the only option is, is to keep going. The only option is, is through, right. Um, and that might be a great personal cost. We've seen that in our practice, Mm -hmm. um, for some families, um, you know, I mean, I personally think we have the best families (laughs) at behavior vets. Our clients are the best. They're, hardworking, they care so deeply about their patients. And while almost nobody can do everything we can ask them to do, the fact that they are willing to take even a few minutes a day, especially at a time like this, to try to help an animal who is not easy to help, um, really just shows the depth of, you know, their caring and their welfare ethic. Um, and uh, so it's, it's really exciting to watch. But the, so there's, there's sort of like the, the identity part of it. What my identity is that I'm a good pet owner and good pet owners do X, Y, Z things. Good pet owners don't give up on dogs would be um, potentially an inner monologue that happens for people. Some people are probably working through early childhood issues and, and issues, emotional issues that their dog is either helping or not helping, but they're embroiled in it. Um, and those are things that human therapists probably get to hear a lot about. 
So, I mean, I know that there are part of the reason that I do what I do is because of my early childhood experience with animals, right? So, and th those feelings are very strong, incredibly strong. And they come from when I was, you know, like in first grade, I'm 43 now, right? So, but they're still mm -hmm. very alive for me. And so for a lot of our clients, these feelings of what is the right way to um, to manage a pup or to have an animal in your life, what it means to be a good dog owner, or they're looking sometimes for, um, what's the word? Validation isn't it. They're, they're looking for redemption sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. they, they have, maybe they had a, an animal where they felt like they didn't do their best. Um, or they've seen families where they felt that that family didn't do their best and they don't want to do that or they they want to make up for something. There's just so many reasons, but some of the easier reasons are just, there's many, many good qualities about these animals, right? So they don't like to go outside. Is it the worst thing in the world? Potentially not. Is it ideal if you live in New York city? No. <laughs> right? um, and so, you know, there's, there's this element of oh, in some of these pups, we have a bit of a square peg round hole because just like you're talking about with Baxter, with the exception of the um, woodpeckers, he might be a dog who, if he didn't live in the city would be more joyful, more of the time. But because he does live in such an intense urban environment and because many families are not inclined to rehome their dogs, um, I know many are, but those aren't our clients generally, um, they may keep pushing an animal to live in an environment that doesn't suit them. Whereas if you are a person that moved to New York City and it turned out that actually getting on the subway is really scary for you and all the noise is really stressful and the fact that you touch like 43 people from the time you leave your apartment to your workplace is too much, you would just move if you could. Yes, right. So uh, there's a lot of cool reasons why people um, work with these pups, but I think it can be one of the reasons can just be it's very rewarding when you see them getting better and it feels good to help. Yes, it does. It really does. I think that's um, that's a great message that, um, you know, that hopefully people are learning about themselves and they are feeling uh, just reinforced, rewarding themselves when they are helping their dogs. Um, you know, sometimes um, one of the things I tell some of my clients who do have these anxious dogs is that uh, I can work with uh, an owner who's had dogs their whole entire life and more of your typical middle of the road dogs, pretty resilient, you know, pretty easygoing dogs. But you, I could have a first time dog owner who has a very anxious dog. And I feel like they could learn a whole lot more about dogs than the owners who have, you know, decades of experience. Um, so what do you think about that? Do you think there's something to that? Do you mean that sometimes families that have decades of experience don't seem to acquire new information about behaviors quickly? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah, that makes complete sense because many families have had dogs that as you say um are quote unquote easy right they're like oh maybe they caused a little bit of trouble but they kept them they worked through it it might have been fr frankly it might have been a very unscientific way but they managed it the dog managed it the human managed it they came to a detente right they figured it out um and the reality of it is is that that's the way luckily enough most dogs and a lot of families are right they figure it out they deal with each other's quirks and they all just they manage to work it out uh but those families, if they get a dog who really requires an actual understanding of dog body language that conflicts with what they have always thought and have been reinforced for doing in the past, um, and now they have a new dog where they have to learn new things, where 
trying to unlearn old stuff is harder than learning new stuff from scratch, right? We know that like reversal learning is hard. And also animal behavior and dog behavior, it, people are passionate about their beliefs in animal behavior and you can't change beliefs with evidence. You just can't. You, I mean, maybe sometimes for some people you can, but you have to assume that it's going to be difficult because beliefs are not just about evidence. They're much deeper than that. And so if you have a family who has had dogs a lot before and they have a lot of beliefs around dogs, you're, you've got a more psychological resistance to um, new learning. A person who has a new dog is coming to the idea and the project of a dog with a learner's mindset, like, hey, you know, I, I'm kind of starting from scratch. It's awesome, right? Because so much easier when you're like, hey, you know, here's the things about your dog that you can notice. And they'll say yes, and they'll learn those things and they'll take it and run because they haven't had this huge package of, you know, reinforcement history and learning history that these other families have had. Okay. Yeah. So what about, well, what about you, um, Dr. C? So you've obviously worked with many, many cases, many dogs who have um, a lot of fear and anxiety. What, what, have, what have you learned when you've helped some of these animals? And how do you, how do you feel when you've had um, a successful outcome? Um, <laughs> I feel like I can sleep at night, right? When <laughs> I'm always joking with my families, you know, if, if you know, XYZ parameter happens, I'm going to have a margarita on Friday, right? I'm going <laughs> to celebrate. Uh, because, you know, the thing is, is that I went to vet school specifically to become a veterinary behaviorist. So while I did some basic training of normal dogs, that was never really my passion. And it's still not my passion. I love normal dogs. Don't get me wrong. I just never meet them anymore. But, um, but what, so for me, um, these little wins that we might see in anxious dogs um, and dogs that have fear-related aggression or compulsive disorders, et cetera, whatever the behavioral issue is, um, the wins tend to be a little bit smaller, right? Because you got a nice, normal, healthy puppy, you teach it to sit, it sits. And then, you know, you practice it in new environments, it sits again. It's very easy to get this huge, actually huge behavior, sit behavior, it's a huge thing. Um, it's actually really easy to get it, right? So it's easy to get that reinforcement as a trainer and as a, a, as a, a handler. Um, whereas the, these smaller wins where, for instance, let's say that your dog has a history of uh, barking and lunging explosively as soon as it sees another dog two blocks away. And once that happens, he stays agitated or, or is hypervigilant, looking around, panting, won't take treats for five minutes after that exposure. Well, if we end up in a situation where we manage to get that dog from, okay, still responding at two blocks, but now he's able to be somewhat recovered in two and a half minutes. We have a 50% recovery on his resiliency, right? It's still a big problem, but we've made progress, right? And so um, those little um, things that happen that I'm used to um, because of the cases that I see are big deals to me because they're big deals for those animals, right? They're telling me our treatment plan is moving in the right direction, right? We may not have this licked we might ever get this problem like this is the problem I'm describing is very significant, right? But um, boy, we have a good shot that we can help this dog in a non-confrontational way, learn to be more comfortable in his environment instead of just suppressing the behaviors and punishing the lunging behavior and saying, no, don't do that. We can teach him all the things that can be done 
that are reinforceable and rewarding, and we can help change his emotional state from being uncomfortable in an environment to feeling pretty comfortable and maybe even happy more of the time. If we can do that to improve that animal's quality of life and a family has agency in doing that, now we've taught that family a non-confrontational, peaceful, joyful way to change behaviors. And that, for you know, for me, like that's, that's what keeps me going is being able to have family see that we can non-violently change behaviors and we can do it with each other. Mm-hmm. So um, the dog is just one way to explore how we can do that. Yes. Oh, that's great. You know, celebrate those little wins, all yeah. those little wins, right? Um, and really uh, find joy in that. Um, okay. Um, so um, before we wrap things up here, um, I have a couple of questions for you. Okay. Um, so this first, this is uh, this is about, you know, just about you and your, your um, you have a cat right now, right? I do, right. You have two cats. Okay. Um, so how do you have fun with your cats? Well, right now we have one, um, I misspoke, we have um, one cat um, named Muddy, and the thing that we're working on right now is um, he really likes to be on the counters, which I don't have a philosophical problem with, but, you know, I don't really want him walking everywhere that we cook. So um, as a family, we've been working on uh, station training him to a cat mat on a counter. So, um, you know, I mean, I guess it's kind of a dorky way to have fun, but it's he's a great cat. We enjoy having him. He's one of the best cats I've ever met. And we don't mind if he's on an elevated surface. So what we did was we found a spot that was in the kitchen where we we tend to pass by a lot. He's a social cat, so that's a good thing for him. For some cats, that would be a bad thing. We put um, a cozy mat on the counter level, so it's really easy to reinforce him when we go by. And then as long as it looks like he'd be open to it, um, he's very motivated by touch. So um, when we go by, we talk to him a little bit, we pet him. So if he's on his mat, we pet him. If he's not on his mat, nothing. Right? Um, and ideally he doesn't manage to get a scrap off the counter as he's meandering around and I have to go back through and, and do everything. Um, so we, we reinforce him with food sometimes when he's there, like if I'm cooking and he's staying in his mat, then, you know, I might give him a little something while he's there. Uh, so he knows food, petting, talking, the opportunity for him, the opportunity to facially bunt is, um, a high reinforcer, like he likes that opportunity. So he knows that on that location, he can actually crawl up on our shoulder and put his face in our faces, which is really cute. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I know, yeah. it's horrible. So, um, so it's not a very exciting behavior. It's not like we're teaching him to jump through hoops, but for us, it's, it's an important behavior because we want to meet his needs. And this allows us to meet his needs for social interaction because he's now in a place where we can very easily provide it. Cause you know, we live in Colorado and that means that we might all be in different rooms at any given time. He could be alone. Um, and you know, that would be by his choice, but it also decreases the chance of social reinforcement if he were interested. So with him utilizing this map more, and hopefully more and more, um, then um, we can provide social reinforcement, we can provide food reinforcement for being there. And then eventually, I'll leverage that space to work on cooperative care as well, which we haven't done too much of with him. But I'm really trying to build this foundation of this space being awesome for a long time, in many different ways, in many different times of day, with the family doing many different things, so that there's a lot of variability built into this space still being awesome. And then I'm going to circle back and every once in a while, I'm going to start doing some cooperative care with him on that spot. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun. And I think that's a great, um, that's a 
I love doing cooperative care with with animals. Uh, I think it's just a great way of uh, helping their their welfare. Um, and which, speaking of which, it's uh, you know now you are obviously in the trenches and working with a lot of patients with uh, some pretty challenging behavior issues. Um, so, um, what what gives you hope for the future of animal welfare? Uh, heck, the the fact that people want to come see us gives me hope for the future of animal welfare, right? When I decided I want to be a veterinary behaviorist, first of all, my family told me categorically I was being insane. Um, I mean, which, you know, I mean, it's still a very unusual profession to have. And, you know, if you can't have a sense of humor about it, then you're in the wrong field. Um, it is a little funny, right, to be an animal psychiatrist. Um, but also, it's super cool. And it's something that almost nobody in the world does. Right. So um, it's fun to be able to have expertise that can help people that they can't just get everywhere. I mean, of course, I wish they could, but it's nice to feel like, hey, I can provide something for you that very few people can. Um, you know, I mean, that's a very lucky profession to be in. If you can just know that you have a way to help people that they can't just get at Starbucks. Right. Like you can get care from Starbucks for four fifty five or what? Five, seven fifty five. Right. They will care for you for five seconds, which is awesome. Um, and I love it. It's very repeatable. Right. Um, but um, this type of, of work and support like we have at our company because of all the amazing people we have within our company, we can really provide a support for families that has been hard to find and at one point was impossible to even imagine, right? That there would be a team of essentially animal psychiatrists working with essentially a team of animal behavioral therapists and that we work together to help families in crisis. Um, but, uh, you know, here we are. <laughs> so Yeah, right. And we're, yeah, and we're, I have so much fun doing this, working um, with the whole team here. Um, and just like you were talking about before, you know, just celebrating the, those little wins with my clients. Uh, it means so much to them. It means so much to me. Uh, just find this whole job very fulfilling. Um, I can hardly even call it a job. It's just, it's a, it's more of a passion <laughs> for, yeah. for me and for a lot of all of us, you know, on the team. It is, um, a, it is a, a place where, at least for our team, where, you know, if you're not passionate, you don't want to play in our playground. This isn't the place for you um, <laughs> because we've, we've got a lot going on. We're constantly um, innovating, trying new things, exploring new ways to support our families. And it's one of the things I love about, our team um, is that, you know, when I first got into to training and it, it still still happens. I mean, I, I know you see it, Ferdy. Um, it was actually really hard for clients because they could get help. But a lot of times the help they were getting was really judgmental. It was frankly sometimes mean both to the dogs and to the people that were seeking help. And they felt like they didn't have any other way to get help. Just that, you know, well, if you go to a dog trainer, they're going to yell at you about the stuff that you've been doing with your dog. They're going to tell you that you're wrong in everything that you're doing. They're going to tell you that you're not strong enough or confident enough or dominant enough. They're going to tell you that you're not enough. And, um, and then they're going to maybe do something that's painful and scary to your animal in the name of teaching. And we know that actually, <laughs> shockingly, it turns out families do better if they have a support network where people deeply care about them, like them as human beings acknowledge their process and the fact that no of course you're not gonna do everything right you're a human being right and also this isn't your field right let's let's just work on it and try to shape a system that works for your family and works for your animal and then get to see the animal doing great with 
a system of training and um, support that is fun and healthy instead of scary and inhibiting. And uh, seeing that shift and being able to provide a community to help families in a way that can, I hope, feel good for them, even though it's these situations can be very emotionally stressful for them, that's huge for me. And that's that's what I want for, for our company and honestly for every company doing this work is to provide a place of kindness and compassion even if we have to have hard conversations and even if we disagree. Mm, that's awesome. That's uh, that's just that's, well, giving people hope out there. That's great. Um, so, how can t- for our for all of our listeners out there, how can people find you? And do you have any uh, upcoming events that you would like to talk about and share? Mm, well, it's easy to find me because you can just type my name into Google, um, and there aren't very many Elise Christensen's, and there are there's only one that's a board certified veterinary behaviorist. Uh, but you can also just find me at behaviorvets.com. That's our website, and uh, that's where you can find all of us and see who's doing what and uh, check out the blog and, and, you know, the podcast will be there, all that stuff. We do have uh, a lot of exciting stuff happening at behavior vets all the time, whether we want it or not, we're doing things. <laughs> so uh, we've got our, we previously had done a deep dive with a neuroscientist, a veterinary neuroscientist, Dr. Kathy Murphy. That went really well. People were really excited about it. It's a really um, in-depth look at a case from the lens of a veterinary behaviorist, a, a behavior consultant and a veterinary neuroscientist. We're doing another one of those coming up here soon. And we're also going to be covering pain management. We've got Lauren's lecture on applied behavior analysis and, and how we utilize that in animal training. So there's a lot of really great webinars coming up from um, behavior vets. And I'm really excited about the the podcast too. I know everybody's doing a podcast these days, but the reality of it is the reason everybody's doing it is because they're fun and people listen to them. So um, I hope people will enjoy listening to all the work that you put into this too, Freddie. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, that's great. Um, so excited to, I am ready to geek out on all the um, webinars that we are be giving to people. Uh, it's something that I just love doing. So uh, hopefully people will join us there as well. Okay. All right. Thank you so, so much for joining uh, joining me today and, and uh, sharing a little something about what you do with our, our listeners. Um, so until then, I guess I will see you around next time uh, for your next uh, little webinar. Um, so um, thank you again so much. This was a real, real pleasure. Thanks again for having me, Ferdy. Hey, animal lovers. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed what you heard and like to learn more, please follow us on Facebook or visit www.behaviorvet.com. We have much more cool stuff for you if you'd like to keep geeking out on companion animal behavior with the Behavior Vets team. Come back soon and join us on our journey to make life better for the animals in your life. Thanks again for listening. Remember to have hope because real change is possible and we can achieve it together. Enjoy our podcast, but this is a reminder that the contents of this podcast are for educational and entertainment purposes only. The comments and advice are never intended to be a substitute for seeing a behavior professional or a credentialed veterinarian in person. While the content is always intended to help people receive the best possible behavior support for their pets, any information you utilize from this podcast is at your own risk.